so occasionally I will do weddings, so I'll officiate weddings. And I've had some pretty interesting experiences, but there's one experience that I have not had yet. And I, I don't really hope to have this one either. I just want to make that clear, and hopefully I'm not dredging up any bad memories or anything like that. But I have not had someone like a bride or a groom leave in the middle of the ceremony. Like I haven't, or, or, or not show up or kind of run around, like the runaway bride thing. I have not had that happen yet. You guys will be the first to know. Um, if it happens, I'll let, you, I'll let you know. No, I'm just kidding. And, and I know you, you think about this scenario because you hear about that happening. I don't know if anybody in here like, knows somebody that that actually happened to. Maybe it's just kind of an urban legend. But you know that that kind of stuff happens. You think, man, that's terrible. That stinks. You know, that that kind of scenario would, would happen in that situation. Um, and my thing is, somebody standing up there officiating the wedding, I think through, like, what in the world would I do? What would I say in that scenario? Maybe you have some ideas you can let me know after the service. Uh, some things you could say. It's like, well, uh, you'll get them next time, tiger. <laughs> I, you know, like, what, what, do you, what do you say? Like, whisper over to, you know, the person who's kind of just standing there not really sure what to do. I've waited on a bride for 45 minutes, but that, that's the, the, the most I've ever done as far as that. I, I don't know, maybe, well, the food's already paid for, so let's go ahead and go across the hall. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would say. Uh, I'll let you guys know if it happens. And, I, you know, I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone, but I think one of the things that that shows, the fact that you would know someone and that you would get engaged and you have this relationship and go through all the planning and stuff like that and still come to that moment and question whether or not you should still go through with it shows that when we come to the altar or to an altar, it represents a very significant moment in our lives. That's one of the reasons why we said early on when we first started this series, hey, when your life is altered, you need to make an altar. You need to recognize and take a moment, give some space, and let God be present in that moment for you so he can kind of guide and direct you through whatever you might be going. Um, when our lives are altered by someone else we'd like to be with for the rest of our life, we go to the altar, Right? When we promise things to God because we want our football team to make it into the championship, like we bow to the altar of our TVs. I saw how the end of the Vikings Saints game happened, so I know you made some promises, Nick, that you need to follow through. Right? We, we bow to the altar of our TV, right, is, is what we do in celebration and recognition of that. When we want distraction and we want something to get rid of the boredom, we want some, a little bit of excitement in our life, we bow to the altar of our smartphones, right? I mean, whether it's intentional or not, we make altars when we want our life to be altered. And the reason that it matters when we do this or whether or not we do it with any sort of intentionality in our life is because the altars that we make alter us. The altars that we make alter us. They change who we are. In the church world, we talk about altars, or maybe you've heard, or maybe in your previous experience, you've you know, heard about somebody going to the altar or coming to the altar. And there's all kinds of different ways that churches have used this terminology throughout, throughout history. But the whole point and the whole reason is because they want people, or we want people, you want to have a God experience moment. You want to have that moment when you're present and with the divine. And while we don't necessarily have like a special place at the front of our stage or there at your seats that we call an altar here in this church, one of the things that we recognize is that God wants to connect with us in the space of our lives. And that can happen anywhere over anything when we recognize that we can encounter God 
when he wants to encounter us. When Noah gets off the boat, the first thing he did after God saved him was to build an altar to the Lord. When Abraham trusted God with the altar at Moriah, God fulfilled his promise. But today's altar is not about a pile of rocks that some men just came up with on their own. Today's altar is a little bit more specific and special. It's a very detailed and specific altar that is directed by God for the Israelites to build and to sacrifice at and have as a regular part of their worship for the entire Israelite nation. So today, we're talking about the altar of worship. And God had directed the Israelites, and we're going to be looking in Exodus chapter 27 this morning, to construct a very specific place so that he could dwell among them. See, at this point in the Israelites' nation history, God is talking to Moses. He's giving him very specific directions, the law and how they're supposed to worship God, how they're supposed to honor him throughout their entire life. And he tells Noah, uh, he tells Moses, almost got me there. He tells Moses that you need to build a very specific structure that will travel along with you, and this is going to be the location, this is going to be the center of your worship to me, and it was called a tabernacle. So I've actually got a picture up here for you if you've never heard of the tabernacle or not familiar with it. The tabernacle basically means a dwelling. In this case, it's a tent dwelling, and so God had the Israelites construct a very specific um, tent of worship that they would actually carry along with them as they traveled and wandered through the wilderness. And it wasn't so much that God needed a dwelling place among the the people. There's a section called the Holy of Holies uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was put and the mercy seat was there, and that was for specifically the presence of God. And it wasn't so much that God needed a house or a place to live, but the Israelites needed a dwelling place for him. They needed it so they could be reminded of the presence of God. And so the tabernacle became a portable, precise presence of God for the people as they traveled for the wilderness. And so here's the description. This is one of the pieces that God uh, describes to Moses that's supposed to be built in Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 7. He says, Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. So about four and a half feet tall, seven and a half feet wide and long. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are made of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings that they will be on two sides of the altar when it was carried. All right, so one of the very interesting things that God does is you thought Ikea was like an original idea. This is is an Ikea grill. God gives very specific, detailed directions of how the Israelites are supposed to put all these, if you can actually... Yeah, sorry, Mike. If you can throw that back, just leave it up there for for a minute. Um, As he's given directions for each of these pieces, he's telling him very specifically how to put these together. And the very first thing that's there at the tabernacle is the altar. The bloody, messy altar where the sacrifices as made. And so, so we've got this huge tent complex. It's Uh, Most of us are more familiar with the football field, and so you can see kind of the difference of the size there. It's 150 feet long is the complex. It's 75 feet wide, and each of those places in there 
have very specific detailed instructions for how they're supposed to be used, how they're supposed to be built, and the place that each of them hold. And it's not some random setup here as you go. All right, so you think through the order of worship that God has set up here, and the very first thing that happens is the sacrifice, the sacrifice for our sins. The very second thing that happens is there's this big bronze bowl that's there filled with water, and one of the things that would happen is there was a ritual type of cleansing and washing that they would take part through, and there's a recognition that we sacrifice, there must be a sacrifice for our sins, but there's also cleansing and forgiveness when it comes to who God is. And then there are lampstands that are in the altar as well. There's a light that God gives us, his word, to make our paths clear. There's a table there specifically for bread because God provides for us. There's a little spot there for incense that's constantly a smell going up to God, like our prayers are supposed to be continually lifting up to him. And there's a holy of holies that I talked about earlier that has the presence of God. And that when we come together and worship and that what we're doing is we're preparing ourselves to be in the presence of God. The tabernacle was a journey of preparation into the presence of God. Now, if we design the tabernacle, I mean, before you can even get in the building, you're already making sacrifices. And if we do design the tabernacle, no, you come inside first, right? At your first act of worship as you come on Sunday morning was to get in the building. And, and when God sets this up, he's like, no, this happens long before you even get into the space. If we set things up, I don't know, maybe we'd eat first, you know, have some, have some, have some food there. I, I don't know, how would you set up the tabernacle? How would you do that? Um, it's very interesting, some of the other things that God institutes as, as, as part of this worship. Did you know that there was a thing called the ransom offering? And so the Israelites actually... They were commanded by God, like you had to pay like a shekel or half a shekel before you could get in. Can you imagine if we used our popcorn buckets? I'm just kidding. Our work buckets and like had it out in front of the door. And it's like, well, you can't come in until you pay the ransom offering. Like, how would you set up that system of worship and honoring God's presence? How would you do it? The first thing that God sets up is sacrifice. To get to the presence of God, the first thing that you had to do was confront your sin. The first thing that you had to do was offer sacrifice. And the altar of worship requires this repetition of sacrifice. Every time they came through, the first thing that they did was sacrifice because of the redemption that you and I have experienced because of Jesus' sacrifice. See, at the altar of worship, worship... Worship always costs something. It costs Jesus everything. It also is supposed to cost us something. See, we're not under the tabernacle, we're not under the temple, you know, form of worship anymore because of Jesus has he's ripped the curtain, all that's opened up. We get to be in the very presence of God as we are gathered here this morning. And instead of it just being the first thing, the center and foundational piece of our worship. Is the sacrificial atonement of Jesus. That's the foundation for us in our worship and how we approach God. See, for the Israelites, one of the things that we recognize very clearly when it comes to the setup is that for worship to happen, it was work. I mean, you had to take, tear up all, tear this stuff down, and you had to build it, sure, but you, the reason it had poles and the reason it had rings to carry stuff is because they were carrying this everywhere and set up, tear down, set up, tear down. Aren't you glad we're in this space, right? <laughs> we're not setting up and tear down in, in, a, in a theater anymore. I mean, it was work 
to worship. You could not bypass the sacrifice and expect to experience the presence of God. And when they came to the altar, they had to bring the best. And it's not just because God arbitrarily makes up these things, because this is what God deserves. Is, is forced on Like they couldn't choose a lamb. It's like, well, we'll choose the one that's got spots, or we'll choose the one that's a little sickly anyway, you know, because he's not, he's not really going to use it for anything, or oh, we can use the one that only has three legs or something. No, it was the best. It couldn't be the blind lamb. It had to be the best lamb. Worship costs us something where we get to offer the best we have to the God who is worthy. And so we think about altars that alter us, and worship is supposed to be such a central part of our, our relationship with God and drawing closer to him, the question then becomes, does our worship cost us anything? I mean, let's talk about this morning. You don't have to just be at church in order to worship God. We're supposed to worship continually, like wherever we are with whatever we do is supposed to be done to the glory of God. But you think through, like Sunday morning, what did worship cost you to be here this morning? The alarm clock? Brunch? I mean, like what did, and, and not that those aren't things, right, that, that we give up and, and they're sacrificial, but what did worship cost you to be here this morning? It goes beyond just this place, but sacrifice is the first thing as we come here. Our lives are meant to be lived out in worship. We gather to worship, but we also live to worship, and we are called to bring our best to the God who is worthy. Worship at the altar is meant to cost us something. That's what God wants, but more importantly from our perspective, it's no less than what God deserves. And you know what's happening as God is giving all these detailed instructions about how the tabernacle is supposed to be built? In Exodus chapter 30, we find out, because Moses is up on this mountain, he's getting the Ten Commandments, he's getting all the, he's getting all the instructions and the laws and stuff like You know what they're doing? They're building and creating an idol because they were tired of waiting on Moses. They actually melt down all the gold that they have, and they build this golden calf, and they'd just been brought out of Egypt. So this miraculous exodus that they had just experienced out of Egypt because of what God had done, and Moses had been leading them. was like, well, Moses is taking a little too long up on the mountain, so you know what? Let's pretend that this inanimate golden calf object, that's what did it. And so they started worshiping and bowing down to this thing. This is what Moses discovers as he comes down out of the, uh, you know, off in the mountain. And here, here's the thing. Even the most seemingly brief disconnections from the sacrifice of worship in our lives causes us to disconnect from the one who gives us reason to worship. Because here's the thing. When we are full participants in the repetition of worship, the altar of worship reminds us that you and I are in the presence of God. Worship is meant to elicit awe and wonder in our lives. I mean, and, and not like every single second you need to turn around and go, whoa, you know, you're always surprised or shocked or something like that. At some point along the way, there should be a little bit of familiarity between us and our relationship with God and understanding how he works and operates and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, there are moments for us and how we live our life intentionally that we stop and just are stunned because we get to experience the amazingness of who God is, the vastness of who he is, and what he's done for us. And, and you just kind of think and stop and wonder, like, how often do I have that sense of awe and wonder? Well, went to church today, heard there's chili afterwards, might hit that up. Uh, you know, read my chapter of the Bible, 
That's great. Oh, I, I, said a, I said a prayer today. I mean, when was the last time, you know, that you stopped and just said, man, I, I don't know where this came from. This, this wasn't me. This wasn't someone else. I mean, God was doing something incredible here. Being in awe and wonder and worship is the only appropriate response when we get to encounter God. And I'm just going to tell you, like, that's not necessarily going to happen with only within an hour-long time frame on a Sunday morning. God is moving in your life. If you're willing to stop and consider how he's doing that and where his presence is, and he's worthy of worship in everything we do in every area that we live. God is the beginning and the end. He's the one who was and is and is to come. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's the one who speaks and creation listens. There's nothing impossible for him. He reigns. He's clothed with majesty. He's mighty. He's king of glory, maker of all. He reigns as power, reigns in power, and by his power, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. When we worship and we pause and we make that sacrifice of praise, we see a glimpse of who God is, and it brings us all. And it brings us wonder. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, as Christ followers, here's the perspective. As people who know a little bit about the tabernacle, a little bit about the, uh, the rites of sacrifice for the Israelite nation, we read, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full insurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, no, no longer is God's presence separated from us by a curtain in the Holy of Holies. We are in his presence now. And when we forget about that context, when we leave it to the side, when we don't keep it at the forefront, the first thing that we experience in our lives, we devalue what Christ has done. Or when we don't sacrifice or bring God worship, we act as if it wasn't something that is necessary for us in this life. You and I get to be leaders in worship and giving glory to God and telling Jesus thank you and being grateful people. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. See, when Jesus took the place, our place, when it came to the sacrifice, it doesn't mean that we don't go to the altar anymore. It means that we have a different purpose because the price has been paid. We may not be any longer offering sacrifices because Jesus was the final once-for-all sacrifice, but we are the place where God chooses to live. And that brings about sacrifice. And that brings about all. Here's the trouble, and here's the part where it's, where it's hard. You go back to that bride or groom that can run away from the altar at any time. You know, we're living sacrifices. And we get to make that choice as whether or not that's going to be the forefront in our lives. And I've seen plenty of runaway brides when it comes to the church. And it's the most heartbreaking thing that I have experienced in life. 
And if there's one thing that causes that, it's a lack of sacrifice. It's a lack of making that the priority. Because we are living, and we do have a choice. Living sacrifices can hop off the altar. We get to choose. Jesus is the living sacrifice, and following his example of living has to include sacrificial living. Life is our altar, and it is our gratitude, it is our wonder of God, it is our sacrificing ourselves first that allows us to live as Jesus lived and as God has designed. Therefore, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You and I get to be the reminders of God's presence for those around us, for the people who are sitting next to you, the people in your job, your family who's not here, your friends. You get to be the presence of God in the midst of the relationships that you have. And here, just a little bit later in the service, Chip is going to be talking about small groups. And I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to take your thunder, but I, just, from a, just from a practical application thing, is like, what, what does this look like? Being, being involved in the body life of a church it is the thing. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know that I could put it more clearly than, than that. But when you're invited to be a part of a small group, it's not because it's a thing that we have that we do here. It's because this is the thing that these are. This is one of the things that we do here as a church that enables you to keep God at the forefront of your life. Talk about accelerating faith journeys toward God. This is how you're going to do it: is being in relationship with other people, and caring for one another, praying for one another, serving one another, serving in the church, being here in worship. Like everything that we do has an intentionality and purpose to bring us to the throne of God. And so when we invite you to be a part of that and to be living sacrifices, it's because we love you and we know that your life has been called for a purpose and we know that God has something important for you and that's why you're here and that's why you get to sacrifice alongside of us in this altar of life. Let me, let me pray for you this morning. God, I just want to ask that as we are considering like what it costs us to follow you, that you would open our eyes to the practical places and avenues where we can put that sacrifice into place in our life. I, I don't know what everybody's thing is. I don't know where everybody is in their life, and I can't make that decision for anyone else but myself. And ask that you help me make the right decisions and make the right sacrifices. Ask that you guide us through the life of Jesus and how we try to model ourselves after him that we make the correct choices and prioritizations and sacrifices in our life as we're trying to constantly be drawn into your presence and to share that presence with others. God, I ask that you give us wisdom, that we hear from your word what direction our life is meant to go in, and we praise you for the honor that it is to be able to live lives of worship and sacrifice and gratitude to you. In Jesus' name, amen.